0: Good evening everyone, welcome to Evening Dhamma Tonight we're looking at purification through knowledge and vision of the practice So to recap, we've just gone through the knowledge and vision discerning what is the path of practice and what is not What is the path and what is not the path So it's at this point that the meditator really begins to practice what we call vipassana When we talk about vipassana we mean this portion of the practice Vipassana as we understand it traditionally is completely mundane And by mundane we mean excluding nibbana, nirvana Realization of freedom from suffering is not vipassana Vipassana is the practice that leads one to freedom from suffering Freedom from suffering is in the final uh, purification it's the true purification really <laughs> this number six is still the preliminary path and vipassana is still the preliminary path so what does vipassana mean? vipassana means to see clearly v- means clearly vipassana means to see or seeing clear seeing what are we trying to see clearly? we're trying to see clearly three things these three things should be familiar to many of you I I talk about them hopefully quite a bit hopefully because they really are the key and they really are the essence of the practice but uh, likely I don't talk about them enough you can never really talk about them enough. Impermanence, suffering and non-self. We're practicing to see that everything inside of us and in the world around us is impermanent, unstable, unpredictable. We're practicing to see that everything inside of us and in the world around us, unsatisfying, stressful, a cause for suffering if you cling to it. I'm practicing to see that everything inside of us and in the world around us is not ours It's not me, It's not mine doesn't belong to us isn't a part of us isn't our self three fairly weighty uh, realizations and the, the I mean they may seem actually somewhat simple at first glance but they have some fairly dramatic repercussions as a person will attest who is going through the, the insight meditation course it has some profound impacts on a profound impact on how we look at the the world I mean first of all because if everything is impermanent then nothing is a refuge nothing can be your stable secure uh, refuge it can't be there for you all the time it's not something we can rely upon which may not sound too bad but it's quite disconcerting when you start to realize this is the nature of reality we, we rely very much upon stability we depend upon it right? we live our lives trying to find it We're, we grow up thinking we have it in our parents in our, our position in life even in our bodies, in who we are it's a very stable thing that we start out with until we start to experience suffering we start to experience change and disappointment We start to realize that the world isn't under our control It isn't predictable We're not sure what's going to happen next This is where trauma comes from People are traumatized because of the shock and the inability to deal with change And I say change and I stick by it Even suffering, great suffering Is is a sort of a change And if you suffer enough, long enough it. It loses the shock value But shock is due to an inability to accept change And so this this leads to a sense of dread And the meditator begins to become quite uneasy About the things that we normally rely upon and think of as our refuge our body realizing that we can't even control our own bodies our thoughts our emotions our experiences seeing firsthand that everything ceases is quite a disturbing experience It uh, takes us out of our comfort zone. And we begin to see not only that this is a sort of a scary state, but it's also quite unpleasant. The meditator begins to, as they progress through the practice, they begin to see the body and mind as Not the, the friendly, comfortable things we, one originally thought The body begins to betray one you know, They see the body is the body betraying the meditator right? The stomach won't rise and fall like it's supposed to The pains and aches in this and that part of the body not really as it not really working as it should it feels kind of negative, unpleasant and the mind as well this crazy mind no? thought it was our mind I thought this was me you start to see how this the body and the mind are conspiring against us all these random thoughts and images and songs running through our head moving movies playing th- behind our eyes Memories we thought we'd long forgotten Coming up again and again and again To uh, annoy and distract us Worries and fears about the future all num- Any number of things We start to see that the mind is Not really the refuge that we thought it was See a lot of suffering of suffering and because we're clinging to as we're clinging to the body and the mind, trying to make it stable, trying to bring it under control, expecting it to be like this like that. And eventually the meditator becomes uh, fed up with the body and the mind. I mean it really takes patience because there's a lot of negativity generally associated with vipassana insights a lot of negative experiences as we realize we're doing things wrong it's negative because we're we're wrong if we weren't wrong we'd be enlightened that's the whole point the, the vipassana is to help us see what we don't see and there are re- repercussions to not seeing and that's what we start to learn we start to see how not seeing that These things are impermanent leads us to take impermanent things as permanent or stable Not seeing that phenomena are are stressful, suffering, a cause for suffering Leads us to cling to them and think they're going to make us happy Not seeing that phenomena are non-self Leads us to take them as self Controllable, me, mine All of this leads us to suffer When they aren't as we think they are There's a lot of negativity involved because we're wrestling with our old wrong views and wrong ideas about reality, wrong perceptions about phenomena. But through patience, the meditator begins to give things up, begins to let go, get fed up, No, I'm not going to cling to these things These things aren't worth clinging to anymore Starts to recoil And in fact become repulsed by experiences Thinking, if only I could be free from all of this Feeling trapped At some point in the practice the meditator will feel trapped Want to run away, sometimes meditators do run away This isn't the same as running away a couple of days into the course, that happens because it's difficult. This is a person who is actually able to practice, who has broken through to vipassana practice and has really come to terms with a very deep problem inherent in samsara and will often run away because, not often, but will sometimes run away because uh, it's hard to admit that life is of this nature it's easier to say well this is just because I'm meditating right this never happened to me before it must be because I'm here in the meditation center and medit- often meditators who do leave will uh, will realize the mistake once they've left because they didn't leave their problems behind them in the monastery get to take all their problems with them you come here and you think this is such a dreadful place full of problems it's actually quite a happy place people come with their problems but they have to take them home with them too you don't get to leave your problems with us we don't have any problems here But if the meditator sticks with it, they realize it's, not, it's nothing to do with uh, meditation practice or the meditation center or the meditation teacher. No matter how awful the teacher is, it's not his fault or her fault. It's the fault of samsara. It's the nature of samsara. It's our fault, really, for misconceiving samsara to be something it's not. and the meditator once they reach this point then they're on the home stretch because this is when the real practice way near the end of vipassana as they slowly work things out and then they finally get it and they say look this is i accept this is the nature of samsara then they get really down to work and then there's this this just this methodical going over and refining and saying no no see wrong wrong no it's not it's not satisfying it's not stable, it's not controllable and with enough of that, enough of that, the meditator enters into the highest, the pinnacle of vipassana purification of the pa- of the practice comes about when the meditator is finally objective When the meditator gets to the point where they see all phenomena as equal simply arising and ceasing, no judgment Pain isn't bad, pleasure isn't good Sights and sounds and smells and tastes and feelings and thoughts are all phenomena that arise and cease It seems kind of insipid or, or dull or, or dreadful even In fact nothing can be further from the truth It's at this point where the meditator is living It's here, is present, is no longer caught up in what it could be, how it should be, how it was, how it will be They're here and now And they're so alive And so free and so peaceful in the mind So clear in the mind With a perfect vipassana practice That they can penetrate Penetrate this cloud of ignorance See things as they truly are And become free from suffering It's a very quick abbreviated version of the vipassana practice There's there's a whole list of knowledges that I've just gone through fairly rapidly and purposely because learning about the knowledges can be quite detrimental It's quite common for people to want to investigate and study and if they hear about this practice of vipassana they immediately go and find all the theory and that can be quite to the detriment of the meditator as I've said, they, they then expect or anticipate or intellectualize the practice If you've never gone through the course It's hard to understand the, the difference between intelligence and wisdom But there's, an, there's a vast chasm of chasm separating the two They're quite different it's important that we never rely upon even teachings that I that I give, that are intentionally based, focused around pushing people to practice. But that we actually practice on our own. Otherwise, we end up just paying lip service to the Buddha's teaching, talking about it, not actually tasting or or experiencing it for ourselves. But that's vipassana. In a nutshell Basically seeing the three characteristics So if it's very difficult And you're seeing Everything fall apart Well, that's what's meant to happen The idea is to be left standing When everything falls apart To not be shaken and have fallen apart To rather be composed And to learn to extricate yourself To pull yourself out of the Meaning to not be dependent upon samsara If it changes like this, I'll be happy If it changes like this, I'll be unhappy To be free from that Not have your happiness depend upon the vicissitudes of life The changes It's quite liberating When you no longer rely upon things that are unreliable Try to find satisfaction in things that can't satisfy Cling to things that aren't you, aren't yours, aren't under your control. So there you go, that's the Dhamma for tonight. Thank you all for coming up. See if we can get to the questions. Looks like we can, it's working. Yes, we've got a bunch of questions tonight. is the mind mine? to me it seems to be just another form of existence like the body just not physical and then the ultimate question if I am not my body and not my mind who what is observing all that is happening in the body and mind uh, the mind is not yours because you you have to understand the difference between a entity based view of reality and an experiential based view of reality. If you look at the we look at reality from a point of view of entities, right this room and everything in it, then of course I am, you know, this is my computer, my microphone, my mind. But these are con- concepts. they're just entities. It's not really it doesn't have any bearing on experience in terms of experience there is no me there is no mine it just doesn't these are not concepts that that play any role in experience when we talk about things not being me and mine we mean that experience doesn't work in terms of ownership you can't own an experience right and experiences don't have existence independent of the chain of experience, they're a part of a causal chain So when you talk about the mind, it doesn't actually exist There's no such thing as the mind from a point of view of experience There's only moments of awareness And those moments of awareness are aware of things or or have an object So there's the awareness and there's the object of the awareness that are a pair and the awareness and the object both arise and cease momentarily so to ask, so these questions only have bearing in 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 regards to this conceptual view of reality which is not how a buddhism looks at the world because it's not useful it's practically useful you know you know if we go to the store it's useful to know that we're talking to the clerk and so on or we go to School, talking to the teacher, knowing pe- the people and places and concepts, getting on the bus. Eating food, it's good to know what's what. Entities are important, but only conceptually, only in a mundane sense. In terms of becoming free from suffering and leaving, freeing ourselves from, from suffering, it's, it, it's not useful. These things don't actually play a part in that experience. Is it, rude, is it rude to ask advanced practitioners about their personal attainments or stage, stage of the path? I don't know about rude, but um, oh, you know, it's interested it to know where you are, and if so, obviously forget. I asked, knowing how far along someone is, could help you decide someone has been practicing for 30 years and hasn't got anywhere then maybe I may want to look elsewhere. No, I understand. I mean, rude is an interesting word. I don't really know how to respond to that. Rude, rude to me signifies a person who has um, a disregard for other persons, another person's uh, well-being. So there's usually anger or ignorance involved. And so it has nothing to do with the actual act and everything to do with one state of mind. I find Western people can be quite rude in that they have expectations that uh, that don't have any consideration for the other person uh, that, that I think that is a problem I mean it's a problem not a Western problem it's a problem with people who, are la- who lack culture I think in general um, I mean I have a lot to say bad about culture and how it can be overbearing but it often teaches you to be considerate of each other I mean, there's a cu- there's a, it doesn't, but there is a consideration culture that, that is often lacking in modern society. I mean, if you look on the internet, there's an incredible lack of of, uh, of consideration. It's funny, in Thailand, I've heard many people say the problem with Westerners is you don't have a word for gangjai. They have this word gang jai. and My uncle, who's lived there for many years, said to me, yeah, in, in English, there is no word. For Kreng Jai. And I said, Of course there is. I'd thought about it myself. I'd heard this, and I said, Of course there is. Con- we just don't use it that much. We're just not very considerate. Often. I mean, it's not true. There are many considerate people outside of Asia, but it's um, so a problem with modern society and certainly with the internet culture. People want to. Uh, They want to rebel against this need to be considerate of other people's feelings. So there's this um, insult that people use, SJW, social justice warrior. And I've talked about this because to me, fighting in a sense, fighting, I mean warrior is obviously a problem. But fighting for social justice can be a very good thing. And most people are not, there are people who are very militant and angry about it. But for many people it's just about being considerate. You know, someone has this outlook on life Or this way of looking, way of seeing And you disagree with it, but you're considerate of them You don't purposely trod on the things that they're sensitive to Thinking, oh, they should just grow up and stop being so sensitive Right? We should rather learn to be sensitive, compassionate Understanding, I mean if for no other reason than because it, it it's it's a much more profitable means of bringing people out of their sensitivity or their oversensitivity. Consideration is is I think very important, and rudeness I think is a sign of of low class and a sign of laziness in a sense. You know, a person who is just can't be bothered to actually uh, take the time to to understand the nuances of interpersonal relationships and and the, the delicacy that goes along with trying to help people become to heal and to become more st- stronger and so on you know, if, I think if anyone understands that, that meditation teacher understands that because you you're constantly trying to help people and you can't help everyone but uh, you certainly don't help people by being rude and inconsiderate it's not the question you asked um, so is it so I, I can't really answer in general whether it's rude but uh, you, I certainly can't answer these questions myself and I think it often could be rude and inconsiderate by people who just you know, don't consider why it might be wrong I mean the fact that you have to ask maybe you you have to ask yourself why would it be rude and considerate if you have to ask me I mean, it's not me who's going to and I guess this is the thing is that rudeness isn't because I say rude of you to ask that it's nothing to do and this is what people rebel against because often they're saying no, no, that's wrong, this is wrong and they start to see how ridiculous it is like in Asia it's quite like that In, in, in many cases um so many things, I'm, I watch the Thai lay people tell the Western, lay, show the Western lay people, don't do that, that's rude, don't do this, that's rude. And it's funny because it's not really rude, and it's kind of rude to just push people, okay, now you have to come and bow before the monk. I mean, how rude is that? <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want people bow, you know. It's not, it's not proper to tell someone you have to bow when they're not even Buddhist, you know, for example. Um, but the point being that If if it's really rude you, 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 you will know for yourself You have to ask yourself Is it rude? Am I being rude here? And if you don't know Then I can't tell you Because you have to learn How to be considerate How to understand The other person's feeling How are they going to feel about this? Um, so I think there's a difference Between culturally inappropriate I suppose And actually rude Because there are, of course, cultural norms You can't go to Thailand and just pat a monk on the head That would be very culturally inappropriate might not be rude um, Although it's probably a bit condescending But um, patting people on the head in Thailand, if you didn't know Is very, very culturally inappropriate and considered to be rude It's not rude, though It's not necessarily rude at all Um pointing to someone with your foot <laughs> it's a big no no uh, I remember picking up a, a pen off the floor with my foot once <laughs> and uh, one of the Thai monks said oh western people's hands he was calling me a monkey basically <laughs> saying I was using my feet as a hand very uh, think, think of us as boors and I mean, it's, in, it's, it's important because In the tropics there's a lot of bacteria so actually using your feet to pick things up is a very bad idea because your feet tend to be attractors of a lot of diseases and bacteria so there's reason for it Now I can't answer these questions because I'm a monk and it's nothing to do with being rude it has to do with the fact that um, it's easily exploited if monks started to brag about their attainments then it easily gets out of hand because people want to support the monks when we rely upon lay people for support and then people support those monks who are attained and then those monks who aren't start to lie about it etc etc it's and those monks who are you know become egotistical about their attainments etc etc so it's it's a big rule it's an important rule that we don't break as for non-monks to answer your question um, yeah, I can see how it can be useful But I don't think it's as useful as people think it to be useful I mean, my teacher is clearly a very powerful person And many people think he's an arahant and so on But I don't see that helping a lot of people That knowledge doesn't really... I mean, yes, it brings people to practice For sure, it brings people to practice at his center But... The simple knowledge that he's this or that Or reach this or that attainment I mean no one really knows because he doesn't say um, He knows what what brings people What brings people is who who he is What people know about him How they feel about him How they feel when they're in his presence And that doesn't take any admission But even still he always says You know going to see enlightened people Or being in their presence hasn't has nothing on actually practicing and if you're if you' the diff if the only reason why you would take up a practice is because someone else has attained something from it or says they've attained something from it, then I'd say you're you're barking up the wrong tree um you really haven't any reason to continue that practice. First of all, because the person could easily be lying or overestimating their own practice, but second of all, because it's meaningless to you, it doesn't actually psychologically do it you know not nearly in the same way that actually practicing and realizing that the practice is beneficial I mean, I mean if you think about it, you don't need that sort of verification. All you need is to sit down and practice and say to yourself, "Whoa, this practice is." really where it's had or this practice is useless either way and if it's taking you a long time to come to either of one of those conclusions then well probably it's the latter and it's useless practice shouldn't take a long time for you to see the efficacy of it I keep having trouble keeping my back straight I sit straight and then I start to slump down most of the sitting meditation, in between I do the mantras, my lower back probably isn't strong enough. No, you don't need to have a straight back. If you're slouching, that's fine. It is a concentration problem. With certain types of meditation, you have a great amount of power because you're very focused on one object, and so you can sit perfectly straight. It, insight meditation of this sort isn't like that, and because you're, you know, you're letting your mind and body uh, ebb and flow. So you won't have the power of concentration At least not in the beginning That's needed to keep a perfectly erect body So it's something I wouldn't worry about Would the Buddhists view, that, would the, Buddhists view the concept of desert I think you mean desert, right? The idea of who deserves what, similar to that of merit Be considered as delusional they think such a view is delusional because it's sustained on some... I don't understand. Dessert. So a person getting what they deserve because it involves uh, an enduring ego, right? The idea that the person in the past... Um, I mean, it's just an inac... It's just an um, imprecision, right? It's not actually wrong. You say... Look, this person is, is sick, It's it, they're getting what they deserved um, I mean, usually it doesn't happen in this life So, But it can, I mean, quite simply If you kill someone, you're, the police are going to come after you That's cause and effect You're going to feel a lot of fear You might even get physically sick Nosebleeds, that kind of thing There's lots of problems that come from being an evil, evil person So to say that person got their just, just deserts. It's um, it's just an imprecise way of saying this cause led to that effect. I mean, yes, it's true that the person doesn't exist, but in a conventional sense, that person got their just desserts. I mean, we all do eventually more or less. I mean it's much it's a bit more complicated than that, but generally speaking, we get our just desserts. Long questions, rather suspicious of long questions Warnings, comments on what order is it best to delve deeper? No, you can't. I mean, reading texts is not a supplement or is not a replacement for actual practice. You say there are no meditation centers of this tradition next in my area. Tough. I mean, studying books, it can potentially, but no. I mean, tough, I mean, (laughs) it's an awful thing to say. Um, Why I say it is because you have to find one. Maybe you have to leave your area Yeah, that might be impractical now But there is no there is no real practical alternative Reading books isn't going to do it for you Not most likely Possibly, very unlikely I don't know I don't want to say that it is possible it Just because everyone thinks they're special Masi Sayada says this He said every, He said uh, well, he basically said, he, paraphrasing a bit, he said most pe- Many people think that they are a, some sort of special individual I mean, we all think we're kind of special, right? Maybe I can do it without help Yeah, it's possible Sure, it's possible It's not very likely, though I really recommend reading for those people who are also practicing I mean I've set up, if you've gotten this far I'd I'd recommend, hey, maybe doing an online course we've set up this online course system whereby you can at least have a weekly meeting with a teacher so you're welcome to take part in that Um, but I guess my point is I wouldn't worry too much about going deeper I mean you you can't replace uh, practice with a manual on the practice it just doesn't work that way and the manual on the practice won't, can't supplement a teacher. A teacher keeps many things that are in the manuals from the students. Uh, purposefully because it would, it would you know, it'd be putting the cart before the horse. Giving the person the information before they understand it. Before they're ready to accept it. And to understand the implications of it so I mean you could be persistent and if you're persistent I would say read the Buddha's original teachings because his teachings are purposefully fairly general you know these later manuals they go into quite detail but the Buddha when he actually taught students a lot like uh, well I mean quite quite general and, and so read his teachings and it will encourage you to practice I do sitting meditation, I'm very concentrated. I feel the need to swallow. But when I'm not mindful, I swallow automatically because my eyes feel dry. Mindfully blink and mindfully swallow. Yeah, that's correct. how do you see dependent origination fitting into the material world what does each nidana actually pertain to right after death and before becoming I don't know, I I don't really understand what you're asking I have a few theories regarding the stages of development of a fetus no, I don't. I don't. That's not the way I roll. Mahasi Sayadaw has some theories. No, the Buddha had some theories. And if you want to learn the Buddha's theories, I really recommend you read Mahasi Sayada's book on dependent origination. But if you got your own theories, empower to you. But I'm not going to get caught up in that. I'm a very much an orthodox sort of person. I follow the theories that that people wiser than me have given because I I mean because I agree with them I suppose but also just because I'm in awe at at, well I'm in awe at the fact that they are able to explain these I I don't have any any bone of contention with them so I I, I don't have my own theories and if I ever did I would be rather suspicious of them and wonder uh, where I was getting these theories from that were different from people who are clearly clearly wiser than me not, I'm not not a poke at you, I'm sorry that might sound a bit like a poke it's more of a reflection on my part and I'm sorry if it sounds like I'm saying hey you're not very wise and people like me or people like Sayadaw are wiser, it's totally up to you, if you have your own theories, power to you I don't, I'm not really you know, into alternative theories I may have a little bit misunderstood what you're saying I just don't get how what the question about how it fits in with the physical world I mean Patichya Samuppade is a thing it it has one interpretation or well potentially two this life or past lives but uh, it still is the only it's only it's quite simple and clearly spelled out (laughs) it's not simple it's actually quite complicated but Mosquito season Go away I caught a mosquito Did the Buddha ever describe his specific meditation techniques? Well he talked a lot about anapanasati And mindfulness of death Mindfulness of the body That kind of thing So yeah, he did Um, We don't have a lot of it in the suttas It's a lot more general talks We don't know whether there's any extra scriptural teachings The Buddha gave on, on actual mechanics of the practice We kind of have the idea that way back then People were just so good at meditation You didn't have to go into detail Whether that was true or not, I don't know Probably not But we hear a lot of stories about how the Buddha and his disciples Would teach people and spend lots of time Teaching them actual meditation techniques So it's not all written down in the sutras, I think. Okay, I've got to go free this mosquito. That's all the questions. Thank you all for coming out. Have a good night.